is very well known that everyone sings. I don't know what it is. But he said when he when he wrote that particular song, he'd either been writing, he must have been writing music, maybe he was writing a book. But he said he'd worked very late, he was very tired, he went to bed, he was trying to fall asleep, and the melody came to him. And his response was, I'm too tired, I'm not interested. <laughs> and he just kept trying to go to sleep, and it, as he said, it wouldn't let him go to sleep, so he just had to get up and write it out <laughs> before he was allowed to sleep that night. And he thought also, there's a melody already to it, but... Uh, anyway, so it's it's really such a gorgeous song. He also said, of course, we're singing it in a romantic context, but he said, really, it's just a song about lifelong friendship. So many of us on the spiritual path, you know, form these bonds that last for our whole lifetime through, and it just expresses that whole sentiment of of uh, sharing a life together. It's just a very touching melody. Um, when he first wrote it, he couldn't sing it. He'd get about halfway through, and he would cry so much he couldn't sing it. And and most people, when they would, many of the singers had to could had a lot of trouble singing it at first because it would just move you so much you couldn't stop crying. It's very sweet. Um, so now to today's. Uh, it's a perfect song for today. It's interesting. Also, a lot of different, uh, mostly women, of course, have sung that song. And the, one of the nicest versions of it comes from a woman in Germany who lives in Italy, who's a German woman. Some of you know her, which is Maya Davy, because she's married her, met her husband when they were 18 years old, and they've been together about 25 or 30 years now. Somehow when she sings it, just the, the depth of that comes through it so beautifully. So there's other people who sing it better, but uh, people agree that she sings it best because there's just so much of her life in it. So. Um, Today's chapter, which is called, before actually, before I go on, does anybody have any comments or questions from last week or the weeks before that I should deal with? You've been conspicuously silent in your questions. Maybe it's because so many of you are here as couples. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier when it's just women, they'll ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Yes? Uh, last week you spoke about audience. Right. Take it in because it was icky, or take it in because you didn't want to expand that far? Probably. Okay. In the context where the person, where you really liked the person, though. Yeah, I'm wondering if maybe it's just... At times. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're, you're saying take in another person's reality. Part of the reasons I asked you the questions is it's not really that you have to become that reality. You have to simply relate to it. You have to relate to it appropriately. That's quite different than, than, than making it your own reality. To be able to relate to someone else's reality appropriately doesn't necessarily imply any, um, uh, any ab- abandonment or diminishment of your commitment to your own reality. It's just that you also are able to see that, you know, if, if I was walking in those shoes, this is what the world would look like to me. It doesn't mean that, that you have to say, therefore, I have to say that's better or that's mine. You just have to relate to it appropriately. For example, if you're in a marriage and there's two of you and it's a 50-50 split and you see the world differently, there's simply no reason why yours should dominate. You know, that you haven't, you have an equal opportunity to respond. So to relate appropriately is to say, you know, this is a, this is a cooperative effort. I have to see that for you, this is what's true. And, 
much of the time I have to just allow your reality to be the one that, that runs the show. The fear of it is, uh, well, the, uh, the fear of it is always because we are, we, are not, we are not sufficiently identified with our inner reality and we are too strongly identified with our outer reality. And the extent to which that we think reality is my thoughts, my feelings, my opportunity to express myself, then when anything seems to impinge upon that, we believe that we are going to disappear. And so, so we have this mistaken idea of self-preservation. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I d- identified in my life something that I called the, my panic survival response. And it was an in- instinctive, um, not rational, generally not controllable feeling that if this, if David's was allowed to do what he wanted to do, that I would cease to exist. Uh, now, you know, and, and because we work together as well as live together, you know, there's just a lot of circumstances in our life where we don't always agree because we see the world very differently. And sometimes he would want to do something, you know, less partly in our personal life, but more often in our, what I don't want to call it our professional life, because it's also our personal life, but just some decision in relation to what we were doing, he would just feel strongly that this is how it should be done. And I would become persuaded that if his way dominated, then the entire world would expire beginning with me. Right? Now, of course, rationally, that's impossible. But in fact, that would be, and I would be into my panic survival response before there was any rational step in the middle. And I began to realize that I would find myself doing and acting as if that we were in some hysterical, life-threatening situation when really we were just talking over some relatively simple matter, right? And so I began to look for clues, clues such as, that that was one. <laughs> no, it's me. <laughs> and, and David's clue is more like this. <laughs> yeah, that was another. You know, just like all of a sudden we are not having a conversation. We are one of us, like a chipmunk talking to a tree. Okay? <laughs> that was a clue. And I began to see the repeating pattern, that whenever the chipmunk was talking to the tree, (laughs) probably we were out of proportion. (laughs) But just calling it that in my own mind, and and then stopping to ask myself, is this really a life-threatening situation? I was able to just put my hand over my mouth. And often I would have to walk away, because once you're in a life-threatening situation, it's not always easy to say, oh yeah. No threat. <laughs> Sometimes it took a little more willpower than that. But I just began to know whenever the chipmunk was talking to the tree, something was totally wrong. And there was just no point in continuing on the subject because we were so far off the subject that there was no hope, which is what Swami talks about in these chapters we're dealing with. Now, why do we feel that way? Past lives, past karma, karma in this life. Just I, I just call it maya. At a certain point, I began to say, who cares why? You know, knowing why is really not the point. The point is to stop. And so I just called it delusion. 
I love the phrase, the devil made me do it. You know, it's like it's not my fault. It's just this uh, cosmic ignorance that thinks that I'm so vulnerable that I have to constantly be shoring up this world, you know, and making everybody in it do just what I want. And I'd like to exaggerate the attitude because when you're doing it, it doesn't feel that stupid, right? But if you can, like, type it, just type it and say, the facts don't matter. Once I am in that consciousness, I'm wrong. Now, I may, ha- I may be able to get out of that consciousness and get back to the facts, and there may actually be something to discuss. But then it won't be a chipmunk talking to a tree. It'll be an actual conversation about, you know, my point of view, your point of view, what that makes you feel like, what I feel like. And, you know, there's a real difference. You can have conversations. Now, not all people are really good at having conversations, so, you know, but there's certainly no hope when you're in that mode. Um, I, you can analyze yourself and sort of notice what triggers you, but all it, all it really comes down to is essentially what I've said. And it's, it is um, it's classic. It doesn't need a specific explanation. If any of us are in it, it's because we've tuned in to this huge strata of delusion called, I can be so easily threatened if the world doesn't do exactly what I want, which is just probably not a happiness-producing attitude because the chances are real good that the world is not going to do what you want. And it's a certainty that the people you love are not going to do what you want unless you have, <laughs> unless you have married or live with somebody who has no energy. You know, I mean, you, you can find somebody who's so powerless and puny in themselves or sick in their mind that they will be your slave but then you'll get bored with them so what difference does it make you know it just won't work does that help yeah pam were you going to ask when you were doing the chipmunk it was reminding me of a meditation pardon me i mean sometimes (laughs) it must feel threatened that the mind is just going Oh, yeah. Oh, while you're meditating. Yes, you're trying to be the tree and your mind is the chipmunk. Yeah, (laughs) No, but that's true. You're right. Because all you're dealing with is this generic fear response that becomes hysterical over things. And, you know, women tend to get excited and men tend to, you know, women tend to turn into chipmunks and men tend to turn into trees. You know, but it's, it's still... It's the same thing. Often men will turn into trees, and that's their panic survival response. If I actually relate to what she's asking me, I will die. And so they express it much more reasonably, much more calmly, but it's just as out of balance. You know, I, I can't, what do you feel? I don't know. Would do you want to talk about it? No. You know, would you like me to help you understand? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to just hack at the women here, you know. Yeah, is there anything? No. How was your day? Fine. But it's partly, of course, it plays on itself. If every time the tree begins to communicate, she turns into a chipmunk, the tree is not so anxious, right? So it's it's a very uh, delicate line that we walk here. But on both sides, if, you know, when the man finds himself suddenly with a mental blank and has nothing to say, and you realize which is so infuriating to the woman, that if anybody other than your wife asked you the same question, you would answer, right? (laughs) Because you would never be that rude to anyone else. It's a very important point. That's what Swami mentions in his book. He mentions it so perfectly. He says, many times 
in our closest relationship, we behave in ways that we would never behave toward anybody else. This is the most precious person in the world to you. And you will do things and say things to them that you wouldn't say to your boss, to your secretary, to the clerk at the store, to the man who fixed your car, to your next-door neighbor. No one in your life is privileged to get the kind of mistreatment that you reserve for the person who's most important to you. Out of some belief that this is um, like, uh, what do I want to say? This is one of the privileges of being of, of being close, is that now you don't ever have to discipline yourself. And it's a perfectly fine assumption. It's just, uh, it kills the, the sweetness of your relationship. And the chapter this week is growing together. And Swami talks about courtesy and respect. But these are very, very, this is not popular, uh, this is not the popular story about relationships. But it is the true story for anybody whose marriage you really admire. I promise you. Anybody whose marriage you really admire, they understand this. Because you just, you can't savage each other with your words or with your attitudes or with your coldness and just expect there to be any sweetness in it. Uh, this is not the popular story about relationships. But it is the true story for anybody whose marriage you really admire. I promise you. Anybody's marriage you really admire, they understand this. Because you just, you can't savage each other with your words or with your attitudes or with your coldness and just expect there to be any sweetness in it. But what that means is you have to take a level of responsibility for yourself and a level of discipline for yourself that is difficult and uh, somehow not part of the picture that we have of relationships. You know, in olden days, decades ago, when uh, you greeted your husband or your wife by saying, good morning, Mrs. So-and-so, and how are you today? And you always referred to your husband as Mr. So-and-so, and there was this tremendous formality, at least on many levels. It was just understood. You know, you were just courteous. You didn't try to make this. And see, part of the problem is there's this very, um, because the, the, the extended family has broken down so much, and because people move so much, and it's so rare to have any like, like context for your life, there, there's this enormous necessity to make of that primary relationship everything. And so you, you, you it, because it, come on now, that's all right. Because it, um, it has to be so much more than it ever can be, you just find yourself um, um, with no outlet. I, I don't know how else to say it. You know, there's just too much, too much is resting on it. And if you're not getting along, there's no reality. And if, if, if the person is not cooperating with you, there's no reality. So you have these little nuclear families sitting, and many people, and I'm not talking to the people in this room, have no um, upward life either. And so it's just face-to-face, and, and it just you fry in it. Because people are just not... Um, the best of spouses is just going to be really different than you in just ways um, that are just infuriating. There's just no other word for it. Um, but but just that simple understanding of courtesy and respect. Um, let me just sort of. I'm not saying it clearly enough. I'm just repeating myself. But 
Swami writes about it very interestingly, and I love the way he calls this chapter growing together. Is there any way to get more air conditioning in here? I mean, is it is real hot in here? Yeah. Well, it's real hot in here, yeah. Maybe we can shut the vents in the other rooms or something like that. Do you want to open up that one too, Brenda, right next to you? Um, yeah, but anyway, there's just a lot of people breathing and using up the... Uh, yeah. I was noticing when I looked at the book that there's a later chapter called uh, Communication, and this chapter is called Growing Together. And yet a great deal of this chapter called Growing Together is really about communication. Um, But what he's really talking about is he's talking about basic ground rules that will hold your relationship together over a very long period of time. And, and that's why he starts with these very basic ideas of just really appreciating who the other person is and really respecting their right to be that way. And, and not having this thought of, um, again, the, the ideas of marriage, sometimes you, you, we get confused because we have a false idea from the start. We, just, we, we have this idea that because we're married, something is owed to me. And that you owe me a certain kind of uh, intimacy, or you owe me a certain uh, way of communicating. And even if you say that that's not how you feel, often there is that sense. And uh, uh, the woman who asked the question earlier, excuse me, I don't remember your name, but anyway, the who, Carol, the um, part of why we get so upset is because we have. Um, started defining our life by what this person is supposed to do. And when that person simply behaves according to their own reality, uh, we feel betrayed. I I was reflecting uh, this morning, and I know I've said it to you many times already in this class, but I'm going to say it again, of what David said to me when he said, everything is fine until you get upset. And I know that people laugh whenever I say that, and I laugh myself, but I was just thinking it through all over again about how... When a person makes a mistake, when somebody in your close proximity does something, a mistake, it's, it's very rarely an intentional desire to do something awful to your life. Or even if it is an intentional desire to do something awful to your life, if they're fundamentally a good person having a bad moment, you know, it isn't really what who they are. It isn't really what they want. But if we get this reaction to it and start thinking that now you have done something really horrible and revealed your true nature to me and then go from that whole thing into this whole story about all the implications of that when in fact somebody just had a bad moment right they didn't have a bad life right they said a bad moment but once you the uh, the reactor begins to start a cycle of reaction it's very difficult to ever get it back Okay, especially when it moves out of out of courtesy. <laughs> courtesy is such a funny word in this context, but it's such a it's such an obvious word because even if somebody in your life does something outside of your intimate relationships that you don't exactly like, generally speaking, it's assumed that you will behave with some restraint, right? And that you will just in some way perhaps need to rectify the situation, but there won't be that life life-threatening experience, and so you'll behave somewhat with decency. And then then things can be worked out. Later on in, in his communication rules, which I'm skipping to a little bit, he talks about just the vast importance of assuming the best. 
if you if you approach someone even when they've done something that you don't like with the assumption that their true intention is to love you and to and to stay with you and to be your friend it gives them the opportunity to say oh what a moron i was i really shouldn't have done that you know i must have really been asleep at the wheel how could i possibly have acted like that if you approach it from well there you are proving again what an absolute idiot you are then it doesn't give them a lot of space um to come forward you know it gives them uh, immediately a sense of total threat why would i open myself to you you know i i know a lot of women and i myself have have made this mistake really want their husbands to be very to confide in them a lot but so much of the time the women will attack him if he does right <laughs> so most men are not stupid you know after uh, enough days or years of that they just find it's easier just to keep quiet like a bureaucrat it's easier for a bureaucrat to say no if he says yes he might get in trouble if he says no he's safe right so a man may have a desire to share his thoughts or his feelings but after too many times of of being attacked for what he thinks or feels and it goes just as well from women toward men but it goes more the other way then he doesn't and then she's so frustrated because he talks to everybody but her but it's not safe to talk to her anymore because he never knows when she's going to blow up right now if there is a, if there is boundaries in your own awareness that you would just never he or she really say something profoundly unkind why would you say something really unkind to the person that you love i mean ask yourself why would you ever do that why would you ever yell why would you ever use bad language why would you ever call them horrible names i mean yes at times one just feels like it but standing back from it why would you ever do that you know unless you're really just trying to destroy the very delicate flower of trust and love between you now i understand what uh challenge i'm putting upon people when i say that and i myself have had to live through it a lot there was a a period of my life when i walked out of the room a great deal it was when i was trying to to teach myself that what david did did not condition my happiness when i just saw that i had allowed myself to fall into a space where when he acted in ways that were contrary to my little blueprint that somehow i felt that therefore i had to be unhappy and after years of of just ordering him to be different and him turning more and more into a tree because you know why not and my beginning to see what was happening i just decided i had used up the way i put it is i had used up all of the criticism i had for the whole rest of my life <laughs> you know i had used up the quota already and there just was none left there was no margin left in the relationship for me to be critical and of course he still wasn't perfect so this was a problem <laughs> but i could see that he was not going to become more perfect by my continuing to do that and you and it was this is sort of like the question that shelly asked last week about the kids what is my objective is my objective to create a happy situation here is my objective to help this person maybe he really is or she really is a big moron maybe they really are right 
So now you have a big project because you're married to a big moron, right? But what is your goal? Your goal is perhaps to help them to be slightly less moronic, right? Because you love them, you have a commitment to them, maybe even there's something endearing about their moronicness. Or maybe you're just stuck there. But nonetheless, the goal is to help them to be less moronic. We'll continually picking up a blunt object and calling them a moron, do anything to make them less that way, right? I mean, you, you have to stand back when you're calm and, 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 and calculate this really seriously. If he is not as communicative as you want him to be, we're constantly badgering him to communicate with you. Is it working? You know, just ask yourself, is it working, Right? Is it likely to work? I mean, and, and so why keep doing it? It was just exactly what Shelley was talking about with, you know, teenagers. Why keep doing it? You have to stand back and think, what is my real goal? And Swami writes, it takes patience. But then he adds, nothing in life is ever accomplished without patience. We're so, uh, instant gratification oriented. We want to find that wonderful person and marry them and have this romantic relationship and that's it. Now we're here. And that's where earlier in the book, that's what he was talking about. It just, just doesn't happen that way because there's all this maya. There's all this ego within ourselves. It's totally mixed up about where our happiness comes from. So you just have to stand back and think, what is my real objective and how can I possibly attain it? And sometimes dramatic things happen, like you realize that you have used up all your criticism. There you are, you know. And I adopted in, in my life, which I have not been entirely successful at, but I've been a lot better, what I called a zero criticism policy. And, I, and there was a couple that I knew. They eventually separated. But there was nothing wrong with their relationship except the, the fact that they criticized each other constantly. I mean, it was... And I suggested to them, why don't you just go on a zero criticism policy? No matter what he does, don't point it out. No matter what she does... Don't point it out. They did it for about two days. And they agreed that it transformed everything. You know, so he loads the dishwasher incorrectly. You know, I mean, now these things really get you after a while. David, my, my husband, is the best housekeeper in the world. I bless his mother every day of my life. He's perfect because long before it has even occurred to me that the house is disorderly, he can't stand it and he cleans it. I love it. It's just <laughs> but he has one really peculiar habit. He just, he, he takes dishes, he doesn't rinse them, he just sets them on the side of the sink. You know, and I just look at that, it's so, it's such an anomaly, you know. And I'll go down there, and you know, sometimes because there's just two of us, the dishes will sit for several days, and you know, there's like egg, and just, if he had just rinsed it. It seems, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Of course, my habit is, I never quite close drawers and doors all the way. I don't know, I'm just very Gemini. So before I quite closed it, I've walked away to do something else. You know, so David comes in. We have this cabinet with like 15 drawers. After I've been in there a while, they're all open. <laughs> and I know it, it really bothers him. And he'll say things, you know, just like, maybe you could just close the drawers a little. <laughs> you know, and he talks about how difficult it is because he has to close all the drawers. Oh, David, you'll have husband's elbow in no time at all, you know. <laughs> They all, they're little, aren't they? But you know, they really, those kinds of things, you end up really like, for, you know, why can't you rinse the damn dishes? We can't get the egg off now. And just, and, and tamasic and all these things that you want to say. That's little. 
But, you know, what if it comes in the house or she comes in the house and, you know, you've had a really hard day and she's in a bad mood and you try to be nice and she just snaps at you and wants to be left alone. And you're not feeling so great yourself. But, like, all right, so these things happen. If you say, you like this, and then the next word is, you always, and then the next thing is, you don't trust me, and the next thing is, you don't really love me, like this, all of a sudden, boom, you have this huge issue. Well, all you really had was a little bit of a bad mood. But if you have a zero criticism policy, the oddest things happen. It's just like it's over. Now, as I said, sometimes I've had to walk out of the room. Sometimes I've had to pick up small objects and throw them at the wall. <laughs> I had a whole, a whole series of Tupperware things that I kept for a while. And when David would leave, I would throw them at the wall. I actually threw a pair of scissors once, but only once. Most of the time, I just threw small, soft objects that I actually found just for that purpose. Because it was just so infuriating. But once I threw thrown soft objects at the wall, I thought to myself, thank God I didn't throw sharp words at my husband. Because sharp words at my husband create weeks of difficulty, even years of dissonance, where soft objects against the wall create marks on the wall. No problem, you can paint over them. But you can't do anything about what you do to each other's hearts. Right? And, and, and as I say, people aren't stupid. They'll develop habits in relationship to what you've set up. Now, why would you want to do this? Because, in fact, you really love each other. And, in fact, for the most part, you probably even really like each other. And you might even actually respect each other. And you might even even appreciate what the other person is going through when you're not crazy. So what? which side of yourself do you want to be your marriage? Do you want it to be the part when you're insane for the pleasure of never having to discipline yourself and having somebody that you can finally be like this with? Or do you really want years together in which you gradually have more and more trust and appreciate each other more and more? Because the oddest thing is, if you're not constantly harping on each other, you have a tendency to trust each other more. And everything that you're trying to make the person do, they're much more likely to do. Now, I can't say that's always true. But if you create an atmosphere in which somebody feels loved and appreciated, gosh, it does real good things for like diminishing the moronicness because they feel safe. Most people are morons because they're scared. You know, most of the time we behave badly because we're afraid. It's as simple as that. So you create a very dangerous environment by demanding that they be less afraid. It doesn't work. You create a very supportive environment. Listen, being married is just like raising children. You know, people don't like to hear that, but all true love is mother love. And I don't just mean women to men. I mean men to women. I said to David one day, David, how much time do you spend just like working around my emotions? You know, just like adjusting everything because I'm upset. This was in the earlier years. And he just smiled real sweet and he said, you don't want to know. <laughs> you know, you just don't really want to know. And I, I, I see that sort of look sometimes among husbands when the women are just being women and the men are just like having to just deal with all this. I mean, I, it's, it's their job. It's all right. <laughs> because we have to put up with you too. It's just the way it is. Um, but at the same time, the more you create an atmosphere in which someone feels secure being themselves, the more you, you get what you're trying to make them do for you. Do you see what I mean? Nobody will open up in a dangerous situation. Why would they? 
And sometimes it takes a long time. Well, I was starting to say about raising children. That was what I was going to say. It's not just women to men. That's where I was getting distracted on that. I, I was in a counseling situation once with a couple that eventually sp- split up. And uh, she was awful to him. I mean, I, I, I hope you can see. I'm equally for men and women. I think we're just all sort of equally ignorant. But she was awful to him. She was just so uh, uh, critical. You know, just even in this counseling session, just the, the kind of things that she said about him, were, he, he was so helpless to change because they were just who he was, you know. Um, and and uh, afterwards, when I was speaking to each of them individually, I had to say to him, you must get away from that woman as quickly as you can because nobody could maintain themselves in the face of that kind of criticism. And I, I don't usually suggest that. And there were children involved in everything. This was many years ago, so don't try to guess who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. But I felt, I mean, the, the, you know, the dynamic gets to be that he wasn't that strong a man and, you know, she, she'd lost respect for him and so on. But I just said, you've got to get away from her because you'll never, you'll never survive under that kind of a barrage. Then when I talked to her, I said, would you ever have spoken that way to any of your children? You know? And the answer was, of course not. You know, of course I wouldn't have said anything so uh, undermining to their self-esteem. I said, why on earth would you say it to your husband? You know, just like, what are you thinking? You, you would know in your child it would destroy them. You think your husband, what, can just like handle that every day? You know, men may be stronger, adults may be stronger, but it doesn't, it's just as devastating, especially if this is the person you're supposed to be able to go to and really uh, have a friend, right? Now, the, the, the highest form of love in the truest sense, and part of, this is part of what's wrong in our culture, in, in, in India, uh, which is not necessarily always the best example, but is in many ways a good example, it's understood that the highest form of love is mother love. In our culture, the, the, the lover, the uh, romantic love, is considered the highest form of love. But romantic love has so much of self-indulgence in it. You know, I love you, you love me, and all of the component of sexuality and what I want and all the satisfaction that you give me and my beauty and how much you adore me. And it doesn't have to be, but it has so much of it, especially in this culture. It's so sexually oriented, which by very definition is my desire being fulfilled right? But mother love, correctly understood, is that love which really says, what is best for you is what I really want. And that by its own nature understands that the mother is self-sacrificing and and the, the good mother doesn't resent that. You know, the bad mother does, but the, but we have to talk in ideals. The good mother doesn't consider it a sacrifice to raise a child and take care of a child, because it's your joy to do it, to to help that person grow into who they're going to be and have that wonderful life is a wonderful satisfaction. Because it's selfless, and it takes into account the other reality. Then we get in our relationships, our supposedly our, our, our everlasting relationships, because with all due respect, most children just leave you behind. You know, every once in a while... You give birth to someone who's not only your child, but your actual friend, you know. But for the most part, you just raise them. And they may be very grateful and very gracious to you the rest of your life, but mostly they go away, and you're left there with your spouse, if you have one, right? But in, in that relationship, above all, 
you should be thinking exactly the same. Here I am. What can I do to really make your life wonderful? And not have the thought in my mind that if I focus on helping your life to be wonderful, I'm losing mine, right? And because our culture is so mixed up, we're so concerned about what's going to happen to me that in fact we actually destroy our happiness. Because real happiness comes from expanding to include other realities and for folk, and forgive, for, from giving of ourselves in, in the right way. Now I understand the aberration, the, you know, the self-sacrifice, the martyrdom, the never having a reality of your own. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the right direction. I'm talking about how to solve the problem. You know, when you find yourself feeling neglected and abused and taken advantage of, you also ask, well, how much am I giving? Because where our real joy comes from is in the giving and in the self-forgetfulness and the pleasure of sharing with others and in the profound satisfaction of, of watching the fruit of your labors flower in front of you. You know, and flower in front of you in a, a relationship where the person is really grateful because you've really sincerely helped them. And they're so much more inclined to then turn to you and have the same consideration. Because as you give, that you will receive. And as your magnetism is, that's what comes back to you. Right? Now, I'm not talking about suppression. And Swami talks very interestingly about suppression in this. And he talks about the, the, the harm that can come from, as I've talked very dramatically today, from saying things while you're insane, that when you come back to your right mind, you'll regret. And he talks about the need to to wait patiently until there is readiness to receive. Now, he admits that very few people can do this. And he also says that it's not suppression to say to yourself, it's not a good time, I'm just going to put this on a shelf. He puts it perfectly, I'm going to put this on a shelf. Okay, but he also remarks, and this is very true, if you don't deal with energy at the time that it's there, but just just squeeze it down and just hold it like this, it will come out in some weird way anyway. So he says, your ability to restrain yourself depends on the degree to which you can do it charitably. And it's just such a perfect statement. It just it sums up the whole of psychology and human relationships. You should think in terms of how you can be most serviceful to the, the other person but you have to do that within the limits of your ability to do it charitably. Because if you begin to always feel, I can't speak, I shouldn't speak, it's not the right time to speak, but you're not really committed to that idea, you're just boiling over with it. I, I had an experience, a little microcosm of this, which some of you have heard this story, but I will tell it again. When David and I, we hadn't been together too very long, we were just getting to know each other, maybe a couple of years. We were traveling. We were in Hawaii, as it happened, with a group of people. And it, it, the issue was so silly. The issue was buying presents for other people. But um, I had been saying for the time that we were traveling that I felt we needed to think about getting some gifts. Now, I'm a person who doesn't like to just go buy anything. I like to really think, is this appropriate? Is this right? It just takes me time. And I kept knowing that we needed time to think about it, and I could never get David's attention on the point. So the very last day, when we hardly had any time, he suddenly announces that we need to buy all these gifts, and he wants to sort of just go in and buy these gifts. And I feel very, you know, this was not a small issue with me, because my relationship with my friends, many things were at stake, my way of doing things. You can see, it touches a lot. How we spend money, all kinds of issues were involved. And I just became so upset. I was just so mad at him 
for not listening to me earlier, for backing me into this corner, for then trying to make us do this thing. That, I mean, you can see it. It was a big story. We're on vacation in Hawaii, right? And I'm just having a fit. We're in a store. You know, when all of this begins to come out, we're in a public place. And I have a, a very strong desire to pick up probably a hard object, you know, and just start bashing him over the head. Just, you know, it was just, that's what I wanted to do. Very much. <laughs> a little piece of me remembered that that probably wouldn't be a good idea. You know, just enough of me remembered that that wouldn't be a good idea for me to be able to, to just stop and think about it. Shall I bash him with a blunt object now? And I considered a hard object versus a soft object. I just tried to see how far I could go to something better than this. So I, I started playing a game of polarities, you know, pick up the hard object, hit him on the head, say, oh, it's all divine, Mother, what difference does it make? You know, not an option. So I scooted the top down a little. I scooted the other side in a little bit. Okay, I'll hit him with the soft object. Right. You know, or else I'll just tell him how terrible he is. No, that's not an option. I start moving together. Finally, we got, I got us out of the store. I got us onto the sidewalk. And still, I haven't said anything, but yes, darling. You know, yes, darling. But I'm just doing this thing in my head. But I'm running the whole cycle. Like, how bad do I have to be? How good can I be? And where is the place where I really am standing? And I got us all the way into the car, all the way back to the apartment, all the way into the apartment, all the way into sitting down so I could finally say, I could remember, this is a very fine man. You know, I really love being married to him. He's a very good person. He really didn't mean to do this to me. He probably doesn't even know he did anything to me. All he said was, let's buy gifts for our friends. Remember? Right? He didn't remember that I have a whole story going on because he did. how would he know? How would he know that I have this huge relationship with buying gifts for people. All he just said was, let's buy gifts for people, right? It was a perfectly typical example for me to go hysterical, right? When all he said was, let's buy gifts. And I remind him, which he's long since forgotten, that I told him three or four times that we needed to. He doesn't have a real sharp memory for things like that, because I talk so much, right? <laughs> you know, this is part of the problem. I talk so much that he doesn't remember all the phrases that I said. So I can't say, you know I've been saying this to you. He'll say, <laughs> and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. He just, forgive me, he doesn't remember everything I say. What a fault. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm joking about it, but you see how, you see how you get yourself into these ridiculous things? You don't necessarily have to analyze it. You just know if in that moment you are furious because he wants to buy gifts, something, there's a clue, right? There's a clue here. You're on vacation in Hawaii and you're furious because he wants to buy presents for your friends. There's a clue. What is it? What is it trying to tell you? What it's trying to tell you is you're losing your mind, right? And you don't really want to be insane in a little gift store on the island of Kauai. It's just not, it's not, it's not good form, right? It's not courteous. It's not respectful. And it's probably not going to bring you anything you want. We got all the way back to the apartment. I was able to say, honey, you know, something is upsetting me a little. <laughs> Would you come sit on the couch and let's talk about it? <laughs> but by that point, I knew that he was a wonderful man. And for some reason, he just wanted to do this thing, which wasn't so wonderful. But I had separated what he had done from who he was. Now, what is the first rule of dealing with children? Just because they behave badly, you don't say that they're bad children, do you? 
you say, and, and, and children, this is one of the, the principles that we teach in our whole educational system is there's, there's the teacher, there's the child, and then there's what the child has done. And as long as the teacher and the child stay really connected, they can both deal with what the child has done. But if the child is only what he's done, then number one, the child feels completely misunderstood and abused, and all the things that happen. It is not different just because our body... Maybe he should have listened to you. Maybe he should have understood that it was important to you. Maybe you should have said it more clearly. But now the only problem is is that we have to figure out what to do about the gifts. So I was able to sit down on the couch, and the two of us sat together, and I was able to put the problem on the table in front of us, right? Instead of like this, right? If you can stand together and look at it, instead of standing at each other and just assaulting, you, you, have, a ho- you have hope, right? That is... That's called not a panic survival response. You're both going to live. Nothing is at stake. It's just a question of presence for your friends. No big deal. And so, you know, he understood that this wasn't my favorite way of doing it. And we just worked it out. I mean, I don't even remember what we did because it didn't really make any difference at that point. It was a whole different story. Now, it wasn't possible for me, and this is the point where I was coming from, it wasn't possible for me to say this doesn't matter. Because it really did matter. It really dealt with something that was really important to my heart. And so I couldn't just not do, deal with it. But our relationship was more important to my heart. Right? And so we tried to deal with it. And you know, then he learns. He learns that this is really important to me. And I learn what's really important to him. Slowly by slowly, unless you destroy each other before you get to that point, you actually do get to find out. And then later on, you get to be careful. You know, like, this really bothers him. And I actually really try to close the drawers. I try to close all the drawers, you know. Because, I don't know, it doesn't bother me, but it bothers him. So what? What's the big deal about it? There's just so many things. Swami talks so sweetly in here about one of the ways to keep your marriage fresh is do something for each other every day that really pleases the other person. And, of course, it's nicer if it's something that's not natural to you. (laughs) You know, some real effort to really do. You know, they just go where he wants to go, for heaven's sakes. I love that story of Swami's parents, where Ray says to Gertrude, that's their names, you know, the most important decision we ever made was to get married, and after that there haven't been any other important decisions. And I actually knew his parents toward the end of their lives. His parents were married 60-some years. They were very nice people. He um, got ill toward the end, and when they were transitioning from being able to live on their own to having people take care of them, they were, you know, naturally not anxious for that. So I went and lived with them for about six weeks because they knew me and it was just like sort of, I wasn't quite, I hadn't, I wasn't quite really the specter of they weren't independent anymore. I was just a friend helping out. And they were so cute because uh, he was a scientist and she was a violinist. And they were just very different by temperament, extremely different by temperament. And they had worked out the system that I watched. And the system was basically, each person would say exactly what they wanted to say, but the other had the perfect right to ignore it, and it would never be mentioned again. Because <laughs> we, he, he had just lost his capacity to really be independent and do things, and he'd always been a very, um, you know, they had a very traditional relationship, and he took care of most practical things, and uh, she wasn't very practical at all. So he, he was, his hearing was really going bad, and, and they had, were getting a, earphone set that could plug into the back of the television so he could hear the television without it having to be so loud that all the neighbors could hear it. But the television they had did not have the right speaker jack, 
And so he said to her, basically, wait until the weekend when one of our sons will come, and he'll go out and, you know, pick out the right television, because I think if you go out, you might not get the right one. Well, she wasn't going to let that stop her. So she went out, she ordered the television, and it was delivered, and it didn't have the right jack, and they couldn't use it. (laughs) That happened exactly as he predicted. And all he did was he tried to plug it in, and he said, you know, it doesn't seem to work here. You know, it doesn't really seem to be the right jack. Oh, honey, I'm sorry, I thought it was going to work. Oh, well, when our son comes, he can straighten it out. (laughs) Because it wasn't important compared to their relationship. And it went the other way, too. He... I uh, did something in the kitchen, and I managed to jam up the egg beaters. You know, they were locked. This is her This is her jer- domain now. I've jammed up the egg beaters. She's totally helpless in the face of the jammed egg beaters. Don't touch it. Don't touch it, she said. Just leave it. You know, and then again, our son is coming this weekend. He'll be able to fix it. <laughs> now, now, Ray is too weak, you know, to do anything now. I mean, he's having a lot of trouble just even getting around. It's very frustrating to him. He says, apply a little pressure. I know you can get them apart like that. <laughs> and she's saying, don't touch it, don't touch it. He's sort of saying, just apply a little pressure. <laughs> so I just kind of went over and I applied a little pressure and it came loose and he said, I knew it would work like that. <laughs> and she's just like, all right, you know, that's what he said to do. Just go ahead and do it. She was determined that I not touch it, but he told me to touch it, so I touched it. Same thing, just no, I mean, those were small incidences. But they, they were just demonstrating to me just the way the flow really works. And, 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 and several other circumstances, which aren't as clear in my mind, I just watched. She would say exactly what she thought. He would take it into account, and he would either follow it or not, depending on what he felt to do. And if, if he heard her, I mean, if she had spoken, and he didn't respond, she respected him too much to say, you're not hearing me, which is another way of saying, generally speaking, you don't agree with me. Right. People hear each other a lot. They just don't always agree with each other. It's very popular to these days to say, well, you're not hearing me. But many times when I've been accused of that, I'm in really in a bind because I've heard you perfectly. I just think your idea is bad. So what am I supposed to do now? I can listen to it again, but it's not likely to get any better. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people really don't hear each other. You know, I know David has a habit, which I, I'm trying to talk less so that he doesn't have to do it, which is he kind of listens to me, and then when he, when he hears me say something he actually thinks is important, he asks me to repeat it. <laughs> it didn't take too many cycles of that before I began to see the pattern, you know? <laughs> so I try not to talk at him so much, you know? Because you can't help it but tune it out if it's going on all the time. You know, sometimes I just deliberately talk at him and I just get it off my chest and I, it's done. But I don't expect him to really listen because it's too much. Right? All right. Why don't we take a break? Then we can come back. Maybe we can all go outside and get cool or pour water on our heads or something. <laughs> uh, let's see. What do I want to say to you? Um, if you want to, when you leave here today, I mean, I think somebody can open up the sanctuary or you can wait till Sunday. We have some fun ideas in place. Um, because we're painting, you know, every, most of you know you've come on Sundays and seen all that's going on. We're about to paint the sanctuary, the, um, the altar area. And so somebody, from the point of view of feng shui or common sense, I don't know which, 
um, so that we could write affirmations and positive things on the walls, and then they'll all be painted over. <laughs> so there's a little paintbrush there with some gold paint in it, and people are writing joy, peace, bliss, love all over the wall, which is really fun. And the other thing is the altar, the main altar piece, and in fact the two side altars, is this big piece of plywood which, on top of which a piece of marble is going to be set. So if you want to take a pencil and write anything, like a prayer or an affirmation for someone you love on that underneath, then we can put that down on top of it. And we'll also do the same when we set up the healing altar, so you can put a permanent prayer there. It's it's a bit uh, passive, but nonetheless, or this, the, the name of someone you love who's died, or just anything like that. Don't write too big. You can write a lot, but don't write too big because we want to give space. It's a pretty big area, though. It's like nine feet. So you can either go over there tonight or next Sunday or... It'll be a little while before it gets covered. When uh, Swami Kriyananda, the, the house that he lives in now in Assisi, it was when it was being built a few years ago, a number of people from America went over to help. And David spent six weeks over there. Um, uh, everybody teases him because he is not a carpenter at all. In fact, the first time I met him was in Denver, Colorado. He was part of this uh, SRF group there. And they were constructing a little couture, a little cabin behind somebody's house, which was going to be their little meditation temple. And I was there with R.T. and Swami Kriyananda was on a nationwide tour. And we were the advanced team, and he was going to come to Denver. And so we were there to sort of set things up a little bit and do a little promotion. And the SRF group seemed like a natural place to promote it at that time. This was 1976 or 70, yeah, 76, 77. And I went to the SRF site, and, and I just sort of climbed onto the, into the place, and he was there wearing this carpenter's belt, and this leather belt with tools in it. And uh, he gave me the impression that he was handy with tools, right? <laughs> I was married to him for five or six years. I kept waiting for him to pull out a tool and fix something, because it was just so set in my mind that he could. You know? It took me a long time to realize that that was just a moment in time, you know? <laughs> but never, ever returned, right? So I'm prefacing the story that he went to Assisi to help with the building, and they just, they, to this day, everyone, including Swamiji, just teases him mercilessly, because the main thing he did was he, they gave him a jackhammer, and he broke up this, the, the, the architect had designed the stairs in such a way that no one could walk down them. So he had to, he spent a lot of his time there just jackhammering the concrete out of there. That was the only job he did. And arranged the coffee breaks. But they, they talk about, you know, Swami's always talking about his building prowess. Now the end of this whole thing is that because he was there building the house when they made Swami's meditation room, uh, David had the community list and the church members list and he put them in the walls right behind Swami's meditation room. And then they built the wall over and hung the pictures of the masters right there. So right where master's picture is, there's the names of everyone in Palo Alto is right behind it. And it's, it's very, it's very sweet to remember that, you know, that it's just there. So that, that was the thought that was motivating us. We thought everybody could write on the altar and every time you look at it, you know that something that, that was dear to your heart is under there and will be there for who knows how long. We're putting a big marble top on top of it, so it'll be there for a long time. So, having said all of that... Uh, that's only the walls in the altar area. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the other walls are finished. Don't go right on them. That's very important. <laughs> Just go right up to the altar and then turn like a short distance right you can touch. You'll see people have started doing it. Yes, Henry. Could you speak a bit more about... Uh, maybe some 
know, tips or something about the, this issue of keeping the balance between getting, you know, suppression and and not going off the deep end. In other words, keeping that balance so that you don't wind up, you know, building up stuff below later. Yeah, so it's very important. You have to, it, you know, if you if you wait six years and then hand it to someone, um, they can't deal with it at that point because it's so out of proportion and so unrelated. So it's very important. <sighs> I mean, when you're in the moment and you know you just feel like you've got to get it out, you know, or or you feel like you can deal with it for the, for the other person, but, but you know, there's a balance there. Um. Almost always, when you feel you have to say it, you shouldn't. I mean, it's just that's another that's a breadcrumb on the trail. When you feel you absolutely can't stand it without speaking it, you almost certainly should not, because because that means you're not thinking about anything but yourself. You know, if if you really have something to say to someone that's really important to them, you generally are aware that this is delicate and you have to say it in a certain way, and you generally don't go at it by just blurting it out. You, you approach it carefully and you think carefully. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Any important conversation you've had where you're at all centered, even if it's very difficult, you, there's not, there's some sense of consciousness about what you're doing. So it, it is a great mistake in our culture to think that the more emotional you are, the more true you are. The more emotional you are, the more likely you are to be out of your mind, right? Insane. Right. But that means you just have to choose your moment. It doesn't mean that you can't say it. It just means that after you're a little bit calmer, you're much more likely to accomplish your goal. And when you're able to look at what you're talking about as a third entity, you know, just like I was saying, as long as you think it's this person, and as long as you are drawing a whole bunch of other real rapid conclusions from this action, you're probably also wrong. Because you did this, it must mean X, Y, and Z. It probably doesn't. You're going to realize later that it was only about buying gifts or it was only about a habit of doing things yourself without consulting your partner or a habit of not communicating. You know, it's not like a, a sign of the death of the relationship. It's just a habit that you have or that person has. Um, you can't always be calm. And Swami says that if you can't hold it in charitably, it's better to speak um, with or without emotion. That's exactly how he writes it. But if you have a long habit of being emotional, it's probably in your own best interest to start training yourself not to do it. And one of the ways to train yourself not to do something that's a bad habit is to practice when it's easier. I mean, generally speaking, whatever your most terrible habit is with the people you care about the most is your teeny-weeny habit all the time you know, an inclination to think angry thoughts about people, to react to situations with swear words, to, to feel that other people are doing it to you. You know, maybe you don't always say those things, but the habit of reacting like that is the habit you bring into the relationship, and then you really, where the stakes are high, you really destroy it. Right? So you practice when it's easier. You realize that when I'm driving down the freeway and that man cuts me off, it's not all right, even though I'm alone in my car, to just let loose with a bunch of really foul language. It's not okay, because then when your spouse or your child does something you really 
don't like, you'll just let out a whole bunch of words that you shouldn't say. Because you're, that's what you do when you get upset. So practice disciplining yourself when the stakes are low so that you kind of get in the habit of disciplining yourself. I mean, the, the simplest things in the world are if you need to say it now, if you wait 10 or 15 seconds, you can wait that long. Then if, you just, if you can just grab two seconds, if you can just say Om Guru three times, that'll be enough to move you from life-threatening to okay. Right? It's just like when the urge to speak is there, stop it. And maybe you only stop it really for 10 seconds. But even 10 seconds will make it less destructive than if it comes out without any control on your part. And I also find it's really helpful. As soon as you realize you're in a hole, stop digging. Right? Just because you've started, when you, if you suddenly realize, I'm not going where I want to go, have the sense to shut up. And that may mean really literally, I mean, I have walked out of a lot of rooms. I just walk out of the room because I know if I say, stay, my compulsion to act will be more than I can handle. I've even gotten out of the car, you know, especially when I was really shifting my energy. I've just said, David, would you please stop the car? And I have just gotten out and walked. Because anything is better than hurting the person I care about. And you just, you have to think it in your mind. This is a rattlesnake biting me, poisoning my life. I do not play with it. I do not tinker with it. I, I just rip it out. I don't do it. Now, that, now, do not think that doesn't mean that you don't come back later and say, you know, it was really upsetting to me and I, we're going to have to talk about it because it's still bothering me. But that's so different. And how dare you, you know? And there's just, there's no place for accusation and crazy words. So basically it's zero. And then you just have to work your way from there back to where you are. But there's lots of place to say, this is what my life is like. This is what it feels like to me. You know, I'm helpless in this. Please help me. There's lots of space for that. Because it's just so ent- entirely different. When your spouse comes to you, you know, and says, help, help me, I'm really caught in this. You just, you want to help them. When they say, you're a horrible person, you don't have an inclination to help them. Not usually, unless you're really a saint. Does that make sense? There's no cheap answer on that one. Everyone wants a real cheap answer. Everyone wants a real, like, free lunch on that. You know, everyone wants to be told that they can take it out on someone else and it's going to be okay. And that's a whole modern movement that is just enormously popular. The problem is it's a disaster. But it's marvelously popular because it's, it's one of those, uh, it's a cheap thrill. You, you get it, you get, you, you get the, all this justification for just doing whatever you want and it's real and it's honest and we really get this, but you don't end up anywhere. You know, how can you tell a true prophet from a false one? By their fruits, ye shall know them. That's what Jesus says, right? If you look at relationships you really admire, ask them if they savage each other with words whenever they feel like it. You know, I I would be astonished if they say yes. Because if you want to be together, you don't. You just grow up, basically. I mean, that's what children do. And you grow up. And and 
you know, once, several times recently, this thought has been, people have talked to me about romantic love and romance. They've said things to me about, well, they don't like it when I talk like this. (laughs) And they don't like it when I say things like, look, this is who you married. I mean, you know, put up with it. They don't like that. I've gotten, I mean, it's, it's like it happened to me like about three times in a row over the course of a month or so that I was just really telling people helpfully, you know, there's all this excitement about so-and-so is like this. And I say, yes, and, you know, like what? And I, I end up saying, you know, a, lo- a lifelong relationship is a lot about just accepting what you got. And then I got the protest, and I got a couple of comments from other people about they want more romance, they want a more romantic relationship. I said to David, what's a romantic relationship? You know, like, what is what does this mean? And I asked, finally, I asked one of the women who said it to me, I said, what does that mean, that you have a romantic relationship? Does that mean that there's a lot of sexuality, there's a lot of passion between you? And what she ended up saying is, we like each other. And so I guess when, you know, it's like we hold hands, we like to be in each other's company, we're good friends to each other, then those are very nice things. How do you get there? You get there by what I'm trying to say, right? How do you maintain the romance in your relationship? You constantly appreciate each other. And you don't rip each other to shreds with your words. Because that allows you to continue to be open to each other. That's what romance is. Romance is the sense that we can just still enjoy each other. And you don't get there except by enormous self-control. Sorry, I wish I had another answer. You know, but you don't get there except by enormous self-control. But when you control yourself, you get in touch with your best nature. I mean, and it's real happy for you. It's not, see, people think that's a terrible thing. But what you get is you get real happy. Because all of a sudden you have some mastery, you know? Instead of just always being the victim of whatever flows through you, you have some mastery over yourself. You can choose. And and that's so exciting. Everything gets really, really wonderful after that. Now, does that make sense? Am I making sense? I wish there was another answer. I really do. I wish I could say, oh, you'll find the right person and you'll be able to let down your guard forever. I really wish I could say that. But it isn't true. I remember once in a marriage, the woman was complaining and the, well, about the way the man responded when he came home and the way he treated her. And, and uh, I was trying to help them. And he said, you know, all day long when I'm out, I have to be real attentive to how I relate to people. And when I come home, I don't want to have to put out that much energy. It was a very honest answer, you know, and, and, and uh, a very familiar answer. I come in the door and now I get to let down, don't I? Well, the problem is you never get to let down. What can I say? The problem is you never get to let down. Self-realization doesn't like, it's not only like eight hours a day. <laughs> you know, many churches, many churches close in the summer. They hardly do anything in the summer. But self-realization is a 12-month-a-year project, you know. Our summers are really active because people need to find God in the summer too. Right? <laughs> people really think that there's a place somewhere where low energy and self-indulgence will bring me happiness. It doesn't. That's why there's so many divorced people. But if you're just kind, you find that you actually can be quite relaxed. 
Because if you're kind, they'll be kind. And I, it's not a hundred percenter, but it does work. And, and if you're kind in the sense that I understand that you're trying, I know that you have your limitations, I respect you for who you are, listen to me and I'll tell you what I need, Let what can we do together? You know, so much can happen. Did you have a, a comment, Henry? There, no. Okay. Does anyone else have a question or a thought? And that's where Swami talks that, you know, the other chapter in this, Growing Together, and the other chapter is Commitment. And uh, uh, he, he, he talks, he, he, so much in this book, like everything Swami writes, is a paragraph. You know, that, that, that one paragraph that says, if you can't restrain yourself with charity, it's better to speak with or without emotion. I mean, that's the whole question of suppression. It's just right there. It's just one sentence, and you just turn the page. You don't realize that the whole thing is right there. You have to really meditate on that and pull it clear. He also talks about commitment. The more superficial your reasons for being together are, the less likely they are to endure. And the more they relate to principle, and he follows it. First, you, re- you relate to the person because they're young and beautiful or whatever they may be. And we get so committed to things that really don't last. And almost everything won't last. You know, that's, that's, people change. This just happens. So you relate, so, so he talks about you, you relate personality. Yogananda used to say, a lot of marriages are just a connection between a bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick. That's how he called it. And, and, pardon me, a bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick. That's what he would say. You know, just being, he was very cynical. He, I mean, he said many things that were, that did not really foster a, a deep sense of romance. <laughs> <laughs> Swamiji, Swami Kriyananda once saying, there was, there's a woman friend who, uh, really had a lot of difficulty in her relationships because she was so romantic in the worst sense. And one day, Swami started singing, Love is a many-splendored thing to her. And he sang it almost all the way through in such a way that you would never, ever, ever listen to that song again. Because, <laughs> you know, he just took every uh, sentimental nuance of it and just milked it for all it was worth until you were just so embarrassed you could hardly bear the fact that you might have ever listened to it you know and so there's this very personal way that people get involved with each other which is just all about this um, romantic in the worst sense idea of just how it's going to be and when it doesn't turn out that way if there's no deeper basis for it it's very difficult to find a reason then you, you can get deeper and you can relate soul to soul, which is you have a sense of a person's deeper reality and you relate to that. You relate to their essential goodness and their positive intentions and their, the, their ideals that they stand for, the, the sturdiness of their character. And all of these things are better. And Swamiji says, but the highest is that you relate, you're really relating to the divine in the form that he sent it to you. You know, and that, that's, that's the, highest sacramental level of marriage. And it's a tricky thing to reach. It's not simple because you yourself have to define your own life in those terms. You can't just sort of look at your spouse and pretend that that's it. I I may have mentioned at the beginning of this class, I can't remember whether I told this story, about my realization that it wasn't really David I had to trust. I just had to trust God. That God has given me in my in my marriage exactly what I need. And if I relate to my marriage, not, not, not so much about who I'm married to, and, and I know that sounds paradoxical, but the less you are concerned about who you're married to, the more you can enjoy who you're married to. 
because you're just really relating to the need to relate appropriately and to the opportunity to relate appropriately and to learn the lessons you need and to enjoy the company that's given to you. Now, none of us, and I certainly put myself in this, are so advanced that it really doesn't matter. You know, it matters a huge amount to all of us. But the more within the context of the personal affection we have, we just think of it in terms of, of God-given. You know, this is the spouse I've been given. And, and this is the reality, the positive reality of marriages that are arranged and not chosen, is that this is the spouse that was given to me. And let me find in this spouse God's gift instead of always evaluating the spouse to see if it's good enough for me. You know, and always protecting yourself and being ready to run out if it's not going to come out just as I want it. You just say, this is the spouse God has given to me. And therefore, I have to go deep enough within myself to see God's gift and what's been given to me, even in their faults, even in their shortcomings, even in the fact that it's going to be many years before we work this out. We just see in that God's gift to me and the opportunity I have because of the pain I experience when I don't do it, that this is going to be a wonderful incentive for me to gradually learn something I need to learn. And it isn't really about who or what they are. And this is how you stay romantic, even though you're very realistic. Because you're romantic on the highest level. It's a divine romance that you're playing out. It's a romance between, it's soul to soul, but it's, it's my learning perfect love until our love becomes the perfect love of God. That's may we love each other unconditionally, ever increasingly, until our love becomes the perfect love of God. This is what our marriage vows say specifically. How do you think you get there? You don't get there by taking every little quality and seeing that as a threat to the relationship. You say, well, hmm, that's interesting. Now what do I do? You know? Now how do I expand my own consciousness in order to inspire this person perhaps to a better way of being? Don't think it's all passive. You may really know that this child that you're married to you know, and this is men and women. You know, I am a mother. I am looking at this soul. I can see, and it, call a spade a spade. I can see that this person has certain qualities that are not the best qualities. Now, how can I help them grow beyond this? How can I help them come to understand? Not how can I tell them that they're wrong and force them to change, which they never will. How can I help them to actually grow beyond this? This is the project God has given to me. I mean, you, you, most parents can't send their children back, right? You just get them, and there they are. And sometimes it's real tapasya. Sometimes it's, you know, it's years and years, and you're just like this when they finally leave home, you know? But still, for the most part, you just keep at it because you feel bound to do that. So you have a marriage partner that's not perfect. How can I really help this person get better? And... Pardon me? Oh, yes. And sometimes you can you can ask a person, you know, what, what can I do to help you? Such an obvious question, isn't it? And they might say, nothing. No, there's no way you could help me. Or, or there's just no way you can help me. <laughs> you know, it's just lots of answers. Or, help me with what? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good answer. You give you an honest answer, is it? Well, then do your best. But so Swami, trust the answer. Depends on who it is, James. really does. But Swamiji says, marriage is too close for anyone to be the other's teacher. 
And he also, in another place, he says, never, ever, ever give your spouse advice. And, the, and I, when he said that, someone said, never? He said, never. I said, what if they ask for advice? He says, then treat the request very, very carefully. Because if you're just, you know, you don't want to go home to be lectured to. It's not fun. It doesn't work. You know, it's just this, they, think about whether you enjoy it. You know, just think about whether you enjoy it. It's really simple. Just reverse it. When your spouse comes at you and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. It's just like, you know, the first thing you say is, that, oh, darling, tell me. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad, you know. You're only the 16th person today to be on my case, and I'm so glad now that I'm home. There's the 17th. You know, I'm just so happy. It just doesn't usually happen. But you can do this. You can pray, not merely to God to help you, but you can actually pray to the person you want to help. One of the most effective things I've found when you're really up against it is you pray to the superconscious of the person that you're trying to deal with. And you say, how can I help you? What do you want me to do? Because the soul always knows, you know, this is just the egos we're working with. The soul is on its path. It knows where it's going. And the soul, you know, the soul, the superconscious is aware of what's needed. And, and many times I've found if I really quiet myself, and it's one of the ways, Henry, that you work with this mess that you're dealing with inside you, you just pray, you know, David or whomever you're dealing with, and do it for your children too. How can I help you? And you'll be surprised. You often get perfect answers. And in the moment when you're there, you say inwardly, what would help you? And very often the answer comes, nothing, be quiet. <laughs> or sometimes something very unexpected comes, just words that are just the right words, completely different way of approaching that you never would have thought of. And Swamiji always says, move slowly. You know, don't say, oh, I just had an inspiration, this is what you need. You know, say, um, I was thinking about something, you know, just start with two sentences, introduce it a little bit, see if there's receptivity, see if it goes anywhere, give the person a chance to answer you. You know, just don't barrel in there. If you want to be intuitive and super conscious, you have to be a little sensitive. And you have to be so patient. Swamiji says in there, and it's true, he says, I've had things to say to people and sometimes I've waited years. 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 Do you hear that word? Years? Okay. He said, but when I have waited, finally when I've said it, it's often been just exactly the right moment. And I know in my own life, I've, I've had him say things to me that I know he was waiting years to say. You know, it's like, oh, ha, there it is, <laughs> like that. And I've also seen him 